We've been asking this question from James, how then shall we live? And he's trying to give wisdom for Christians living in distress, going through difficult times. And what's the answer to that question? How do we live in days of pressure, of problems, of uh, uncertainties? How do we live? And James is writing to the church in that day, but also to us, we are to live by faith. It's a faith at work. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. Um, Nominal Christianity is not only common here and in other parts of the world, but it's also applauded. The church is being tempted to appease religious consumers by designing another gospel, a new gospel, to gain their approval through self-help formulas, self-esteem-driven jingles, and feel-good worship, rather than calling for purity, sacrifice, and service. This condition is... uh, identified and described by one pastor in this way. This is the nominal Christian. A cold, austere, intellectual faith void of action is nothing more than a mental ascent to the existence of God. This faith is just one step above atheism. It is long on profession but short on practice. Prolific in words but poverty-stricken. It works. It is hypocrisy raised to the superlative degree. The person who says he is a Christian but gives no evidence of it by what he does is James' target. This person joins the church but refuses to serve, give, or even attend. Unless, of course, he says, it's convenient. Welcome to the nominal church. James faced a very similar trend in his day. He wrote to expose the hypocrisy that was threatening the church. It might be called religiosity, as he does, or legalism, nominalism. It had a form of godliness, but it had no substance. It had ritual, but no relationship. It had zeal but no compassion. It had arrogance, but no humility. It had partiality, bigotry, but no mercy. And it had religious rhetoric without love. This kind of person posed as a Pharisee on Sunday and lived like everyone else during the week. Something was wrong, says James, with a faith that bore no discernible distinction between what Christ taught and what the world was doing. It showed no spiritual fruit. And the Apostle Paul recognized this problem as well. He wrote to the church in Corinth to try to have it take a good look at itself to see if whether or not its faith was at work. He writes in 2 Corinthians 13, Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. 
test yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. You see, it's been the concern of the church since James, the apostles, and even to this day. That there are those who will take the name of Christian, but it's only in name. And James argues that this is in direct and necessary connection between what we believe to be true and the good works. In other words, where there is true faith, there will be good works. Um, We'll find that in our text this morning, chapter 2. And we will look at how he addresses this. He's very straightforward. And as he writes, he writes to the church and people that may be in the church uh, in such a way that he asks a question, almost a rhetorical question, and then gives an answer to it. So he has sort of a hypothetical person sitting in the pew. He addresses, and then he says, but let me answer my own question. So let's look at how he addresses this. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. His answer, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, doctrinally sound. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So he is uh, uh, truly addressing this situation. And James is saying that our faith is proven by our works. In other words, your faith will live itself out by the way you serve, by the way you live. The nominal Christian will, part, uh, will, will argue with, uh, hypothetically with James, and he would say something like this, well, you say you have faith, but I've got the works. This is the classic argument of the Pharisee or the hypocrite. You see, their faith was in their good works rather than their faith in Christ's work on the cross. Their works were an empty profession. In other words, if a Christian is being judged for his faith, the question is, is there sufficient and enough evidence of good works done in love to convict them? In other words, the life you're living Would that convict you to have true faith in Christ? Um, James talks about uh, these works. Works are sometimes, if it could be also like the fruit, like the fruit of my life, the fruit of my uh, faith. Uh, Sometimes uh, works are called works righteousness, which is another way of saying that a person, his works are what he's counting on, For his righteousness. But these are really vain attempts. To find acceptance with God on our terms. By trying to keep visible arbitrary demands of the law. These are the sticklers. They say this is the law. This is what I do. But they select the ones that are doable. The ones that are visible. But completely neglect the hard attitudes. That's the person Jesus went after. The guy who says, well, I didn't walk five miles here on the Sabbath. 
And the Lord said, and you also didn't help the brother who was on the wayside who needed help. So James uh, speaks an awful lot like his, uh, his half-brother. So our works are to be a response, to be the overflow of our faith in Christ. And we believe that these works, these fruit that comes forth from our life, are first empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they're motivated by the overwhelming motivation in our life, it's gratitude. If you understand, if we understand the faith that we have in Christ, it should generate gratitude. So where there is true faith, there should be gratitude. And where there's gratitude, there should be service. There should be works. I think he'll make that even more clear as we move on. Uh, the Christian's claim to true for, uh, faith is... Well, I'll show you my faith by my works, by my life. See, justification means being declared righteous. And so, as a, our faith tells us that you are declared righteous through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. It's a work of God. The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. So that's a universal truth. None of us can come to God on our own terms in counting on our righteousness. Even if you've won the Perlitzer Prize for having done the most magnificent things around the world, you still stand before God unjustified. But if you have been justified by faith in Christ then your penalty, the penalty of your sin has been removed once and forever. i got to love that. Therefore, there's no condemnation because we've been declared once and forever justified. I love those thoughts. John Calvin jumped into this discussion when he said faith alone justifies but the faith that justifies is never alone no one has ever been counted righteous however without good works follow his logic there and perhaps one of the best explanations of what it means to be justified or declared righteous comes from uh, a man that you may have heard of before by name of Martin Luther here's what he had to say it's very clear these people got it And they pass it on to us. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done. But before the question is asked, it has already been done. And is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and he looks around for faith and, a good, and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. These men were addressing a problem that was in the church then and is still present, and that is people who take the name of Christ but have no faith in him. This is really an important thing for us to keep in mind. James is 
calling for self-examination. And uh, he goes on in his argument. Let's cover it quickly. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. James is giving to us a a way of looking at faith at work. And the man who dismisses the cry of a brother in need is rationalizing away his responsibilities to love his neighbor as he loves himself. And these are really indicting words if you really stop and ponder what that means to us. If you claim faith in Christ, then our life should have some evidence to back that up. Uh, James talked about this earlier. He's, uh, this person is a person who is a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word. Where there's true faith, they hear the word, and then they act upon it by faith. Now, James further argued, you say you believe God is one, so do demons. Now, here's what, it's really an incredible little argument he has. He's talked before about a worthless religion. A worthless religion is somebody who hears, but doesn't act upon what he hears. Uh, This person that he's addressing in his arguments here is a person who, James would say, has a worthless religion because it has a claim to faith but has no works. Doesn't show compassion. Doesn't show um, mercy to those who are in need. Um, And it might be some person like this. A person who shows up to church on Easter and Christmas, all dressed up, And proudly claims he can recite Bible verses he learned in Sunday school. He enjoys singing hymns. Believes the creeds and confessions. But he's not moved to love his neighbor as himself. The reality that James says is that even the demons can make these claims. Really. I mean, they know the Bible. Satan and his minions know the Bible from cover to cover. That's been obvious to us when you read the temptation of Christ. You remember? It was the devil who was quoting scripture. Or should I say misquoting scripture. Misapplying it. So demons twist the scriptures. That's why Paul warns the church about doctrines of demons that it will enter into the church. They twist the scriptures to deceive So just the knowledge of biblical doctrine won't justify anyone when they stand before Christ at the great white judgment throne. Now, James is a good preacher. He's given the doctrinal background of what it means to be justified, that where one has been justified and has faith, there will be evidence of this. This faith will be at work, as we said. Now, let's look at 
some examples that he gives to us. They are wonderful examples of faith that works. True faith. The first is that of Abraham, who's a key figure, sometimes referred to by Israel as the father of faith. And then there is a rather, how would I say, a unique example of faith. It's a woman, a woman who was a prostitute, who was a Gentile, who never received a divine revelation. Uh, when the scriptures, this is ladies for you now, there are so many examples in the scripture of men of faith. But when, when the Bible brings a woman into the story, watch. God brings a woman into the story to show faith, to show his power. They are the ones who will be used of God to do incredible things. And here is this woman by the name of Rahab. Why her? We'll talk about that. And so now he gives us this quick background to these people. These are examples of faith that works. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Boy, he's going right to the guy in the pew, dressed up for Sunday. That faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed or fulfilled by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness I love this last little phrase. And he was called a friend of God. Where there is true faith, we're called friends with God. You see that, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I need to explain some of that so there's no confusion. Um, He asked how was Abraham's faith justified? And he will say, he's justified by his works. Or, another way, his works demonstrated, gave evidence that he was justified. And it's a stunning question. Wasn't Abraham justified by works? And the answer is going to be yes. But what do the scriptures say about faith? Well, it says that God declared Abraham was justified when he believed God and counted to him for righteousness. These are really incredible truths that James is laying out for us. Notice this. Abraham was first declared righteous before he did anything righteous. Paul in Romans 4, 19, uh, 9 through 13 tells us that there should be a distinction between faith and our works. Paul will say in Romans, for we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? 
while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? He's asking a question. Do you think Abraham was accounted righteous because he was circumcised? Or before he was circumcised? What's the answer to that? Before. Because what comes first? Faith, then works. And Abraham is our great example. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And that's what he's trying to say. That this man Abraham first believed, placed his trust in God, and then God declared him righteous. And when he was declared righteous, then we find that his life began to manifest these uh, signs, if you, you would, of his, of his faith. Um, so when did his works justify his faith? Well, he tells us in 21 that he was justified. He was justified by offering Isaac as a sacrifice. That's when he, his works justified his faith. He was the best example of how faith was working together with his works, motivating him, driving him for obedience to God. So let's take a look at the sequence of things in Abraham's life. Um, The Lord promised Abraham this promise in Genesis 12.3. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the promise. And a number of years later, the Lord appeared to Abraham in a vision. In Genesis 15. A number of years after that promise, his wife was barren, Sarah. They wanted this promised child. So when do we get to have that kid? So in Genesis 15, years later, without a child, the Lord took him outside his tent and said, "Uh, I want you to look at this, Abraham. Look, that's when there was no smog. And they could say, now look up at the sky. What do you see? I see all these stars and all these magnificent uh, uh, planets and so forth out there. And then the Lord is saying to him, Count the stars if you can, for so shall your seed be, so shall your descendants or family be. Well, you would think, all right, let's get ready to have a child. And what does God do? Waits (laughs) 25 more years. Twenty-five years. You know what that will make him? One hundred years old and Sarah ninety. On his calendar, on his watches, Lord, it's a nice promise, but it's a little too late for that. But Isaac was conceived and born. The promise had been kept by God. Isn't that wonderful. That this son, this only son, 
their only begotten son would be the one who would carry the seed of the promised savior who would bless all the peoples of the world. Now, if you were a parent, how would you look at your son? You would say, I love him, but this is a special child God has given us to us because in him will be the one who will bless all the people of the world. I would, I would watch Isaac very carefully. He can't use a skateboard. He can't go to the other things that the other kids do because he's got the future of the world in him. Well, that all sounded good, except the Lord came to Abraham when Isaac was probably a, a young teen or early 20s. And the Lord had this astonishing commandment. I want you to take your only son whom you love. I want you to take him to a mountain called Moriah. It'll take you three days to get there. And I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. Now remember, here's the conflict. Here's the the tension. God promised that in my son would be the blessing to the whole world. And then the Lord said, and now I want you to take him to a mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. How do you do that? How would you do that? I find that extremely difficult. But here's what was going on in Abraham's mind. He was a man of faith. So here's how he extrapolated in his mind. How do you live in distressed times? By faith. So as he's got Isaac, he's got a servant, and they're walking to Mount Moriah. Here's what Abraham's thinking. Let's see, he promised the seed. He promised the blessing. He gave us a son whom I love. So if he made that promise, and God is always faithful to his promises, then if I sacrifice him, what's the logical conclusion for a man of faith? He'll raise him from the dead. Abraham, where did you get that idea? I got that idea because God's always faithful to his promises. That's how I live. So for three days, which I think are significant, he's taking his only son to Mount Moriah. And as he walks, he's saying he will be sacrificed on Mount Moriah, but God will raise him from the dead on the third day. That's faith. So when they get to the mountain, the name of the mountain is Mount Moriah. Here's where his faith went into action, where his faith worked. He gets off the donkey. Isaac is there, the servant's there, and he says to the servant, "Uh, will you watch our stuff? Because we will be back. Didn't say I will be back. We will be back. Got it? And uh, Isaac is saying, well, what do we got to do? Take this lumber, this wood, firewood, and would you carry it to the top of the mountain? What mountain is that? 
Mount Moriah? What mountain was God's only begotten son offered as a sacrifice? On Mount Moriah. Who carries the wood? Isaac. For his own sacrificial death. He carries it up top of the mountain. They build a altar. They put the wood on it. Then Isaac said, oh, I got one more question. I got to ask, where's the lamb? (laughs) Abraham says, you're the lamb. We don't know how that all worked itself out, but we do know that Isaac was tied onto the wood. He didn't fight his dad, if I could read it correctly. Faith in him. And then he said to his son, God will provide himself the lamb. And God did. He provided his own son. And as Abraham took that knife to plunge into the heart of his son, can you imagine how hard that would be? I acted this out with my daughters one time when we were illustrating the story. I just, I wept. I just thought, I could not, I, you know, look at that, that little gal there that I love. Like, how could I do that? He was prepared to do it because he was so convinced that God would raise his son from the dead. Because God is one who's always faithful to his promises. That's faith. He's ready, and then all of a sudden the angel of the Lord says, Stop it. God will provide a lamb, and here's part of the story that's kind of fascinating. He turns around and he looks and he finds a ram, and it's caught in thorns on its head. (laughs) Takes the lamb with thorns on his head. And offers him as a sacrifice. And you know what Abraham said by faith? I'm going to call this mountain. God will provide. Did God provide? He provided a substitute for Isaac. He provided a substitute for us. And it was God's only son. Who wore those thorns. Who carried his cross up that hill. Became our substitute. So that we could be declared righteous. Abraham's faith. Went to work. Under the most incredible situations. I've got a great amount of. uh, How would I say. Admiration for that man. I really, truly do. He says, so you see then that a person is justified by works and not just by a profession of faith only. And now he turns to this unlikely hero. Um, When you read scripture, like I say, when a woman comes on the scene, God's serious. He's ready to do something. And we read a story that doesn't need to be in the, in, the, in the story, really, quite honestly. But it's there because it's important to the story for a couple reasons. Here's why. 
Here's a woman who will have faith. Here's a woman that God will use. Who will include into the genealogy of Jesus. A Gentile, a prostitute. With a terrible history. But comes to faith. She will have a, she will get married to a, a man from the tribe of Judah whose name is Salmon. And tradition says that he was one of the spies. How's that for the fun part of the story? That she hid him. And then they, after this is all over, they fall in love, they get married. And she lives in the camps of Judah and Israel. And by the way, when she marries Salmon, they have a baby, a baby boy. And do you know what the son's name is? Boaz. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah. It says a lot about that woman. If you know the integrity of Boaz, think of that, his mother, farmer prostitute, Gentile, raises a young man like that her life was changed well how was her faith put to work I'm just going to tell you this is just is kind of like a story the spies come to her establishment the spies went there because if you want to get information that's where you would go you could check out what the soldiers are doing. You can check out what's the troop movements. She had a place on the wall so she could see what's in the city as well as what's going on. So they go there. Somebody weasels, a mole, says, there are some spies of Israel at Rahab's. So Rahab, what does she do? She takes them to the, to the roof and then she puts some uh, hay or wheat over on top of them, puts them there. And then the soldiers come and say, we've been told that uh, you have spies in your place. Well, you're free to go look. They go up and look. They're not here. And as soon as that's done, they leave. She goes to the spies and she said, listen. I'm going to talk straightforward with you. This is serious business for me. We heard, heard that the God of Israel separated the Red Sea so that Israel could be delivered from Egypt. We are scared to death that Joshua is going to come because we're under judgment. So here's what she said. I'm going to send you out another way, but promise me this. That when Joshua, whose name in the New Testament is what? Jesus. <laughs> so when Jesus comes, when Joshua comes, in judgment, you'll save my family. She was concerned about her parents and her family. We'll be holding up here. I believe he's coming. She never received a vision like Joshua, or like yeah, Joshua, or uh, even of of, uh, of uh, any of the other men like Abraham or Moses. She, how does she? Get, what's her faith based on? 
historical evidence. Based on that evidence, she says, I will place my faith in the God of Israel. He's ruler over all heaven and earth. I believe that. That's faith. And she put her faith at risk, or her life at risk, out of faith, believing that the God who delivered Israel will deliver her and her family. She's a woman of faith. I love those stories because this is how it works out for us. So how do we live today? Well, like Abraham, you have to cling to the promises of God. Do you believe God has promised that I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you? That I will provide everything you need? That I will protect you? I will love you? That I am coming back? So get ready. She got a... a, a Rahab got all of her family ready. And then she popped out the window a scarlet rope as a sign. Scarlet meaning redemption. She said, I am going to be redeemed from judgment by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Joshua. And you know the story. When they came, Joshua, they did this incredible thing. They just walked around the city. They just walked around it. Then on the last time around, they blew the trumpets and what happened? The walls just shook and fell down, except on one part of the wall. What part of the wall was it that didn't fall? The one where Rahab was. Did God honor the covenant that was made by Rahab with Israel to the God of Israel? Yes, he did. Protected them. How do we live in these days? By faith in the promises of God. Cling to them. We also persevere. We also live in desperate times by faith that God will deliver us. He will deliver us. He has shown himself to be true throughout history. We could see how he worked through Abraham's willingness to offer his son as a sacrifice. God did not raise Isaac from the dead, but God raised his own son from the dead. On what day? Third day. Just as Abraham believed. My friends, we are called to live in desperate days. And that's why the scriptures are so critical to us. If you claim faith in Christ, let it be shown by your good works, by the way you care for the poor. You care for the widow. You care for orphans. You care for those who are sick in our church, for those who are grieving. How will they know we're Christians, said Jesus? They will know we are his followers by what? By the way 
we love one another. Keep loving each other. Don't let anyone or anything keep you from loving who we are here. Persevere with each other. Be patient with each other. Forgive each other. And then watch how God works within us. This is the month of implementing what has begun seven months ago. And God is always faithful to his promises. Always. Trust him. He will deliver you. He will protect you. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for your word. Though we are quick to admire Abraham and Rahab, we got to remember that it is you who is the God who is faithful. You were faithful to Abraham. You were faithful to Rahab. And you have proven yourself faithful to us as well. Lord, for those who are here this morning, please encourage them. Encourage them with the examples of Abraham and Rahab. How faithful you were to them and how faithful you want to be to your people as well today. May you find us faithful and may you find our faith is at work. At work for you. Working for your kingdom. Working for your glory. Because our hearts are full of gratitude. May Christ be glorified here as our faith is at work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.